today we're going to be finishing up the book of 2 Timothy for about two years, I think. I haven't counted the months or anything, but we've been working through First and 2 Timothy. And today we're going to be finishing that. Now today I'm going to be leaving off with the benediction, but I'm also going to be giving you what I call 10 bookmarks. And those are 10 passages, five from 1 Timothy, five from 2 Timothy, which to me are really verses that if you are a Bible verse person that likes to put Bible verses on your refrigerator magnets, these would be good verses to do so because they will help you understand the theology of 1 and 2 Timothy. And I believe that these verses I'm going to be sharing with you as a review of 1 and 2 Timothy are really indispensable for the theology of the church because they remedy so many problems in false theology today. So with that, let's though begin with Paul's greetings that he wants Timothy to give to various believers in Ephesus. Why? Because the Apostle Paul had a great love and concern for the church in Ephesus. Listen to what he said, his last verses here. 2 Timothy four nineteen through 22, Paul said, Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, I want to talk about a few of the names that you see in this list and some of the significance of it. First of all, notice Paul wanted Timothy to greet Prisca and Aquila. Prisca elsewhere is mentioned as Priscilla. Now, one of the interesting things about Aquila, he was the husband. This is the wife. They were a husband and wife ministry team. Aquila was a Jew who was born in Pontus. And what had happened was after Claudius, who was the Roman emperor, started persecuting Jews, he and his wife Priscilla, they had left Rome and they went to Corinth where they met Paul. Well, as Paul was on the way to Syria and Antioch, he had dropped them off in Ephesus. Now, one of the things I want to point out is Aquila and Priscilla are very profound because they helped Apollos, a man of God who did a lot of preaching to the early church, they helped him, according to Acts 18, better understand the scriptures. So to me, it's a beautiful picture of people who had a very humble attitude. First, Apollos is this very powerful orator, and he was willing to humble himself under Aquila and Priscilla and learn the scriptures in a better way. Now, we don't exactly know what his heirs were. Perhaps he was deficient in understanding the relationship between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, but we can't be dogmatic. But think also how Aquila and Priscilla handled the issue. They pulled him aside in private and taught him better the ways of the Word of God. Now, another name I want to mention is Anisphorus. Anisphorus was one who was not ashamed of Paul's chains in Rome. In fact, he comforted him and visited him. Now, what's interesting is here, and also in 2 Timothy 1.16, Paul says, greet the household of Anisphorus. It's interesting, perhaps the household of Anisphorus is mentioned because Anisphorus may have gone to be with the Lord. That's why household is always mentioned with his name, not his name alone. Another name that you might want to just jot down, Erastus. Erastus was a fellow believer with Timothy. In fact, Erastus was a believer who was also a steward of the city of Corinth, and he and Timothy are mentioned as fellow co-workers in the gospel. Another name that I think may be significant is Trophimus. Trophimus was a man who was somewhat responsible for the apostle Paul being arrested 
in the temple in Jerusalem. Not because it was his fault. But remember, Trophimus is a believer who was a Gentile who Paul brings into the temple, according to Acts 21, and it so offended the Jews that they arrested Paul. So again, it wasn't Trophimus's fault, but he was one of the reasons why Paul ended up being arrested. Now, the final name I just want to mention in this list, notice Linus. Linus could be the bishop of Rome that happens in the sub-apostolic period, although we can't be dogmatic about that. But what I want to focus on here for just a moment is our benediction. Notice in blue in verse 2, there's two parts of it. First of all, Paul says, The Lord be with your spirit. Now here, I think certainly the Apostle Paul is referring to Jesus Christ as Lord. And every time Paul does so, he's really affirming the deity of Christ. Why? Because in Isaiah 43, 11, we only have one Lord and Savior who is Yahweh. And so if Jesus is Lord, he is akin to Yahweh himself. But notice Paul says, the Lord be with your spirit. The spirit here is the immaterial portion of man. Remember, a human being is comprised of both the body, the material portion, and the soul or the spirit. They're used interchangeably. We at Gospel of Grace teach dichotomy, that a human being is material and immaterial, and spirit or soul are interchangeable. Well, the spirit is sometimes depicted in the scriptures as that which the Holy Spirit ministers to. In fact, remember in Romans 8.16, the apostle Paul said that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. But Paul's big point here is he knows that the Lord will not be physically present with Timothy because he has not yet returned. So he longs and prays that the Lord would be spiritually with him. Finally, Paul ends all of his writings. Think about it. These are the last words of the Apostle Paul. He writes, grace be with you. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. But also in context, I think it certainly has to do with relying upon God's power for ministry. And how fitting a way to end this epistle, because the Apostle Paul of all human beings knew in his travails and all of the sufferings he had gone through as an apostle, just how much he needed the unmerited favor of God and the power of God for his own ministry, he certainly knew that Timothy, his protege, a pastor and elder in Ephesus, needed God's grace. And so those are the final words of the Apostle Paul. Now, what I want to do is do a review of First and Second Timothy with you. And again, I want to do 10 bookmarks. These are 10 verses that I believe are absolutely essential to our theology. And again, five from First Timothy, five from Second Timothy. And by the way, I had a tough time narrowing these down. So I spent a lot of work narrowing it down to 10. But the first bookmark that I want to allude to is a passage in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11 that helps believers understand the relationship between the Mosaic law and the believer. There are some believers who are confused today who think that they're still under the Mosaic law, and they don't understand the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. One of the reasons, I think, for this confusion is John Calvin, one of the reformers, had claimed that in what he called the third use of the law, that the law of Moses should be used by the Christian for sanctification. Now, if John Calvin meant the scriptures for sanctification, amen, but I think he meant it as the legal binding code. And you're going to find out today, again from 1 Timothy, that that's not true. Listen to what Paul said regarding the law of Moses. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, Paul said, 
But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, dear ones, I want to take this passage and pick it apart a little bit. Let's begin in verse 8. I'll pull up my pointer here. The first thing we have to define is what does Paul mean by the law? Does he mean the law is scripture? Or does he mean the law as the Mosaic law is a binding legal code? I think it's the latter. And we know that because the false teachers in Ephesus in the previous verses were trying to bind the entire church back to parts of the Mosaic code. So I think certainly the law is referring to the law of Moses as a binding legal code. Well, notice as he says, the law is good if it is used lawfully, meaning if it's used correctly. And then what you see in red is how you should use it correctly. Verse 9, he says, realizing the fact the law is not made for a righteous person. Now, let me ask you in Paul's theology, who is a righteous person? It's a believer in Jesus. So Paul is succinctly saying that the Mosaic law is not made for a believer. Does everyone see that? But who is it for? He says, but it's for those who are lawless and rebellious. In other words, it's for the unbeliever. It's for the unbeliever. That's what the law of Moses is for. And so when John Calvin said that the Christian should submit to the Mosaic covenant in order to have sanctification, or we should learn from that sanctification, I don't think that he's using the law of Moses correctly, according to the Apostle Paul. Now, it's interesting to note also, remember here in verse 10, I had to cut it out to fit it all on the screen. There are a lot of sins that are listed. But notice all the sins, and I have this ellipsis here. Notice they are contrary to sound teaching. But what is the standard of sound teaching? Is it the law of Moses? No, it's the gospel. The gospel is the standard of sound teaching, meaning the new covenant. So what is the standard of sound teaching for the Christian as to what you are to do and as to what you are not to do? It is not the Mosaic law. It is the gospel or the new covenant teachings that come from Christ and his apostles. Dear brothers and sisters, you and I have shifted from the Mosaic law and the old lawgiver Moses to the new covenant with Jesus Christ as our lawgiver. In fact, I was helped by a person that I see in here today that's going to be getting married soon to understand a little bit better about how the New Testament writers understood the Old Testament. Here's three R's I want you to remember. What did the apostles do with the Old Testament, namely the Mosaic Law? Three R's. First of all, they rejected it, the Mosaic Law, as a means of justification. Second, they replaced the Mosaic Law in Moses with the new covenant in Christ. Third, the New Testament writers reappropriated the Old Testament so that it will always remain the scriptures for the people of God. Not as a binding legal code, but as scripture that will drive you to Christ. Let's begin with the first R. They rejected, that is these apostles, the Mosaic law as a means of justification. You don't have to turn to this, but jot it down. Romans 3.20, I'll read it to you. Romans 3.20, Paul said, by the works of the law, that would be the law of Moses, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
the apostles completely reject any notion that the law of Moses can save. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 through 21. We're coming to the second R, the replacement of the Mosaic law or the old covenant with the new covenant. I want you to see a passage that succinctly states that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 21. Now, remember, as you're turning there, this is where the Apostle Paul says that he became all things to all people so that by all possible means some may be saved. Notice what he says here. He says, to the Jews, this is 1 Corinthians 9.20, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Now stop there. Notice in verse 20, Paul very clearly says that he's not under the law. What law is he referring to? The law of Moses. The apostle Paul is declaring to you that he is not under the law of Moses. But notice in verse 21, to the Gentiles, he says, to those who are without law, he says, as without law, though, notice what he says, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Notice Paul makes the switch from the Mosaic covenant. He's not under that, but he's under the law of Christ. He's under the new covenant, and so are you. And one of the passages that succinctly states that is 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Okay, third thing, they reappropriated the Old Testament as scripture for the people of God. One passage you can see that is in Romans 3, 21. Jot this down. Romans 3, 21, Paul said, but now apart from the law, that's the law of Moses as a binding legal code, the righteousness of God has been manifest, clearly seen, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There in Romans 3.21, Paul uses law two different ways. You're saved apart from the law as a binding legal code, but the law is scripture will always bear witness to messianic salvation. They reappropriated the Old Testament as scripture. Brothers and sisters, if someone comes to you today and says, you know what, I think you're being a slacker, as a Christian, what you need is a heavy dose of the Mosaic law for your sanctification. Oh, I've heard it. We've had people leave this church over it. Say, no, no, no. And you point them to 1 Timothy 1, 8, 3, 11, and say, we're no longer under the Mosaic covenant. That's to drive those who are sinners to Christ. But it's not for the sanctification of the believer. Okay, second passage that I think is one of the essential bookmarks of 1 Timothy is a passage that clearly delineates Christ's mission. How many times have you heard in our culture today that the reason Christ came is to give you your best life now? You should never get sick. You should always have a Cadillac in your garage. Well, that's what the Word of Faith teachers are saying. Or perhaps you've heard that Jesus Christ came to bring us social justice, a Marxist utopia where you take from the haves and give to the have-nots, and one day you're going to have peace and earth through human effort here and now. You're hearing that more and more all the time. But dear ones, in 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul who speaks for Christ explains clearly why Jesus came. He says, 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Did Jesus come to give you your best life now? Did he come to make sure there's a chicken in every pot? 
to redistribute wealth or to give us social justice. No, he came to save sinners. That's what he came to do. Now, this is exactly what Jesus himself said in Luke 19.10. He says, I came to seek and save that which is lost. But this begs the question when he says he came into the world to save sinners, save sinners from what? Well, when you read scripture, what we are saved from is not a boring day. It's not from our neighbors. It's not from having a lack of equality. What we're ultimately being saved from is the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, where Paul says, we have not been destined to wrath, but to obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why do we have to be saved from the wrath of God? Because every single person is a sinner who has rebelled against God. The greatest threat facing every human being and every individual is that they are subject to the wrath of God. The moment they trust in Jesus Christ, that's removed. And all they have to look forward to is glory, resurrection, and the kingdom to come. That's why Christ came. He came to save sinners. Now, there's a third bookmark that I want to talk about that has to do with a heresy that we see in Roman Catholicism today. Most of you know that in Roman Catholicism, Mary is often elevated as a co-mediator with Jesus Christ. In fact, let me read to you from their very catechism. This is page 969, 970 of the Roman Catholic Catechism. Regarding Mary, it says that she was, quote, taken up into heaven and she did not lay aside the saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us gifts of eternal salvation. It goes on to say, therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles Advocate, by the way, these are all caps in their own writing, Helper, Benefactrix, and Mediatrix, which is Mediator, unquote. So let's look at what the Apostle Paul says. Now remember, who is the Apostle Paul? Based on the four criteria that I shared with you last week, he is the personal spokesman for Jesus Christ. So you either have to go with the personal spokesman who speaks for Christ or the Roman Catholic Church. I'm going with Paul. Listen to the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 2.5, an essential verse for all of us. Paul said, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. How many mediators are there? There's one mediator, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice here, Paul is accentuating the fact that Jesus is a man. Now, remember, he's truly God, truly man in one person. By the way, that is not a contradiction. It would be a contradiction to say that he's truly man and not truly man at the same time in the same relationship, or truly God and not truly God. We don't say that. That's not what the text of Scripture teaches. He's truly man, and he's truly God. But the reason he had to be a man was because he had to be our new representative, to be our mediator. The first man, Adam, brought us sin, death, and hell. But our new representative, because he lived the perfect life that we could not, he lives as our mediator to make constant intercession for us. That's who the Jesus Christ is. Notice also implied would be his deity just in the term Christ. Why? Because the Messiah, that's Christ, was to be the God-man. Remember Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a son is born, but that son is called elsewhere in that same verse, wonderful counselor, mighty God. So the God-man, Jesus, is the only mediator. Okay, fourth bookmark 
How many times today in our culture do you hear that unless men and women have identical roles, there cannot be complete equality? In fact, sad enough to see that in our culture, we also see it in people who profess to be Christians. In fact, on the way up to my cabin, there's on this old country road, this beautiful Lutheran church. It's an ELCA church. And it says right on the sign, Pastor so-and-so who's a woman. But what I want to show you is that's not what Paul allowed. He saw distinctions in different roles for the genders. And again, there are some that may be listening to this and you say, you know what, I don't know if I go along with you here, Eric. After all, I'm progressive. Well, what I would say to that is the Apostle Paul, again, is the one who speaks for Christ. And it is never a good thing to progress beyond where Jesus Christ's doctrines go. And so if you disagree with the Apostle Paul, your ultimate beef and disagreement is with Jesus, the creator of all. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said, 1 Timothy 2.12. He says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So a woman is not permitted to be an elder or a pastor in the church and exercise authority or teach in that regard. Now, let me address the issue of equality because today in our culture, there's a lot of confusion. The, the argument is unless you have identical roles as men and women, you don't have complete equality. Well, let's take an analogy from the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have one God revealed in three persons. Each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-essential. They're co-eternal and they're co-equal. And notice you don't have Jesus lamenting or saying, well, you know, unless I have the same role as the Holy Spirit or the Father, I can't be an equal. No, the Father, in a sense, plans salvation. Jesus carries it out through his perfect life and his propitious death on the cross. And the Holy Spirit applies to our life. All three members of the Trinity have a different role, as it were, and that they remain completely equal. So therefore, if the triune God can have different roles in the salvation and yet have complete equality, why is that not possible between men and women? Well, of course it is. And so, dear ones, we have to learn our theology not from a culture that's gone awry, but from the Apostle Paul who speaks the very words of Christ. Yes, there are gender role distinctions, but yet complete equality in value that men and women have before God. We see the same thing in Galatians 3.28, that ultimately your value, no matter what your role is, is dependent on faith in Christ. There's no slave nor free, it says. There's no Jew nor Gentile. There's no male nor female. But all are one in Christ Jesus. Your worth as a human being is not tied up in the role but rather it's tied up in your faith and identity in Christ. Okay, now let's go on to our fifth one. This is the last one from 1 Timothy that I'll share with you, our fifth bookmark from there. And today I want to mention in our culture that many people would be greatly helped by this passage because unwittingly they are buying into doctrines of demons. Now I say they unwittingly buy into doctrines of demons because they're actually trying to be more pious than the scriptures command. So, for example, when people go beyond the scriptures and the commands that Christ give, they often think that that'll make them more holy or righteous before God. 
But in reality, if you, for example, will not eat a certain food thinking that that makes you more righteous before God, you're actually doing two things. First of all, you're attacking Christ as the Lord of the church. You're saying, I actually make the rules, not him. But second, you're attacking the sufficiency of Christ. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, because of his perfect life and his substitutionary death, he made you righteous forevermore in the sight of God the moment you believed. But if you say, well, actually, if I don't eat this food, if I don't do this on a certain day, then I'm going to be righteous, you're attacking the sufficiency unwittingly that you have in Christ. That was the nature of the false teaching that you had in Ephesus, and that's exactly what Paul points out here in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Paul said, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, so that's the last days, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Notice verse 3 says, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God had created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Dear ones, I want you to focus here in just a moment on what you see in red, the doctrines of demons. Isn't it interesting that Paul links the doctrines of demons to men who forbid marriage? So he's delineating here what one of the doctrines of demons that he has in his mind is. It's men who forbid marriage. Why? Because does Jesus Christ or his apostles forbid marriage? No. 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle Paul could not be clear that we can get married. So let me ask you what religion today says that their priests cannot get married. Well, that's the Roman Catholic Church, isn't it? Now, is that a godly doctrine? Well, I would submit to you that according to the Apostle Paul, it's a doctrine of demons. Are we going to go with the Apostle Paul or are we going to go with the Roman Catholic Church? Now, think about those who say you can't eat certain foods. Did Jesus Christ not declare all foods clean? Yes, he did in Mark chapter 7. So let's say you say, well, you know what? To be really holy, I'm not going to eat certain foods on Friday. And therefore, I'm going to be really pleasing to God. Do you see that that's an attack on the sufficiency of Christ and that the moment you believe, you are as pleasing to God as you could ever be? If you say, no, it actually is by not eating a certain food, you're attacking the sufficiency that you have in Jesus Christ. And unwittingly, you're lining up with the doctrines of demons who have a racket, and the racket is to get you away from trusting in Christ alone. As soon as you depart from trusting in Christ alone, you've bought into the doctrines of demons. Another very important verse that we learned in 1 Timothy. Now, let's make our switch to 2 Timothy. This is bookmark number 6. We're on the other side now. We're in 2 Timothy. And I want to talk about a verse that succinctly tells us what the gospel is. How many times have you been asked, well, what is the gospel? And I've even heard scholars that I have a lot of respect for talk about the gospel means good news and they're right. But all of a sudden they'll start talking about all sorts of good news that you could attribute the gospel to. But in the New Testament, we have to be very clear that the term gospel, yes, it means good news. But it's not just the good news that the Vikings may win a Super Bowl or that you may not be audited by the IRS or your children may get a good grade. It's not any just sort of good news. The good news of the gospel 
is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ who saves us from our sins. What's the gospel focused on? The person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's a verse that succinctly states this. Notice Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Now, remember, I'm saying that the gospel is the person and work of Christ. Here you have a mention of his person in blue, and in red you have a mention of his work. Now, notice the phrase, risen from the dead. I'm saying that that's his work. You might say, well, hey, wait a minute, Eric. Why doesn't Paul mention the fact that Jesus, through a virgin birth, had an incarnation? That he lived a perfect life, that he did miraculous deeds, that he preached wonderful messages, that he died on a cross? Yes, he did do all these things. Why does Paul only mention his resurrection? His resurrection is the capstone of all that he did. And it infers that all those other things are true as well. What it really is, is it's what we would call a synecdoche. So let me give you an example of a synecdoche. A synecdoche is where a part refers to the whole. So you come driving in to the parking lot, you've got a brand new vehicle. And I say, hey, nice wheels. Now, of course, I'm referring to more than just the round things on your vehicle. I'm saying your entire vehicle is really nice. The wheels are just a part that refer to the whole. Here, the resurrection is the capstone, and what's inferred is all of the work of Christ. Now, notice the term descendant of David. Remember, the Messiah was to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah. In 2 Samuel 7, you get to the fact that he's going to be a descendant of David. Now, the fact that he's a descendant of David is a summary then of the person of Christ. Why? Because in Isaiah 11.1, we know that, yes, the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, but when you get to Isaiah 11.10, he's the originator of David. Wow, is that a conundrum? How can one man be a descendant of David, and yet the source and the originator of David, well, of course, it necessitates that he's the God-man. So in summary form, Paul has just laid out the gospel is the person in the work of Christ. If anyone ever asks you, what is the gospel? It's the person and work of Christ. And then we have to answer for people why they need them. They're sinners under the wrath of God. And how do they receive them? By faith alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. Okay, now let's go on to another important issue, and that is eternal security. This is bookmark number seven. How many times do people question, because of perhaps some sin in their life, their own salvation? And by the way, as we talk about sin in our lives, it is never too early to repent and to turn from sin. But what we learn in the scriptures is that, yes, conviction comes from the Holy Spirit, and we should want to turn and repent from sin. But condemnation for a believer is not from God. Why? Because we have our sin debt paid in full. And so one of the passages that I believe clearly teaches that even at times when we're faithless, he remains faithful, is found here in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. It really does teach the perseverance of the saints. Notice Paul says it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Brothers and sisters, does everyone see the great news there in blue 
that you see in verse 13 that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, one of the questions in this text is, is Christ there being depicted as faithful to judge or faithful to save? Well, through the pastoral epistles, when it comes to God or Christ's faithfulness, Paul always depicts Christ's faithfulness or God's faithfulness as salvation for God's people. And so what I think Paul is clearly saying here is even when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny the promises that he made. Let me remind you that the original covenant that you and I are really partakers in is the Abrahamic covenant. In some sense, the new covenant is a ratification and a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I want to remind you, in the Abrahamic covenant, those promises were given to Abraham unilaterally. Let me explain. Do you remember back in Genesis 15, God brought Abraham out, and he said, as you can count the stars, so shall your seed be, your descendants. And in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, then Abraham asked the question, how do I know that I will receive these things? And so what the Lord did is he cut a covenant with Abraham. He didn't just make a covenant, he cut a covenant. The term karath breathe, cut the covenant, is something that they would do in antiquity. For example, when two tribes wanted to bury the hatchet and have peace. So, for example, let's say you had two warring tribes and they wanted to have peace with one another, what they would do is they would cut an animal to cut a covenant. And they would cut the animal in two, and perhaps the leader of the tribe, or maybe the whole tribe, but they would walk through the blood path. And as they walked through the blood path of the animal, they would say something like, if I go against the terms of the covenant, may what happened to this filthy animal happen to me in sevenfold. And then the other party, they would walk through the blood path, and they would say, if I go against the terms of the covenant... May what happened to this filthy animal happen to me in sevenfold. Now, remember, Abraham cuts the animals in two. We can read about this in Genesis 15. But then the Lord puts them asleep. And who alone walks the blood path? The Lord does. The Lord is saying, if I go against the terms of the covenant, me, the Holy One of Israel, may what happened to the filthy animals happened to me. He signed his promises unilaterally because he could swear by no one greater. He swore the oath by himself. Brothers and sisters, there's going to be times in your life where you gaff it, where you're unfaithful. But your salvation is not dependent upon you being so great, but it's dependent upon you belonging to a great Savior, a Savior who's faithful even when we're faithless. Okay, now, let's move on to bullet point eight here, or bookmark eight. don't even remember what I'm calling these things. God alone grants repentance. There's a lot of times there's discussions and debates about whether or not humans have the ability to come to saving faith and repentance on their own, or are we completely dependent upon God? Well, I think it's the latter, and I think 2 Timothy 2.24 through 25 gives us important information in that regard. Notice Paul said uh, regarding the pastor or elder, he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. Now stop there. Where else did you see this idea of being able to teach? That's one of the criteria of the elder in 1 Timothy 3. I didn't even get to that bookmark. 
right? So think about all the theology that's important to the church in First and Second Timothy. Notice they're also to be patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Dear ones, I want you to take note of this term, grant. God is the one who grants, the term didomi can also be rendered give. He's the one who gives or grants repentance. And so you see then, for the Apostle Paul, the role of the elder, the preacher, the teacher, we are to simply be those who lovingly give the truth, and God is responsible for the results because only God can overcome a hardened heart. He is the one who grants people repentance. Now, this term didomi for grant is also used in a very significant text in Matthew 13. You don't have to turn to it, but jot down Matthew 13, 11. Remember in Matthew 13, Jesus was preaching to the masses, including the leadership of Israel, but he would speak to them in parables. And then he would pull his disciples aside and he would plainly tell them what the parables meant. Well, finally, the disciples catch wind of this, and in Matthew 13, 11, right around there, they ask the question, why is it that you speak to them in parables, but you teach us plainly? And Jesus said, because to you it's been granted, ditto me, the knowledge of the kingdom of God, but to them it's not been granted. Very same term that's used here. Who is ultimately responsible for whether or not a person repents and believes? It's the doing of God. Salvation from first to last is a work of God. And we see that here in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. If you're saved, give all glory to him. It wasn't your doing. It was something God granted. Okay, bookmark number nine. All scripture is God-breathed. And I tell you, this is a doozy. Because here, it refutes four errors. Four errors. Let me list them off to you. This passage is so important to all of evangelicalism. The first error that this refutes is that the Old Testament really wasn't messianic. You know, I sat under a teaching in seminary where there was a man who claimed that the Old Testament really wasn't about the Messiah. He claimed that it was only the apostles who read into the idea of the Old Testament, the Messiah after the fact. What you're going to see is, no, the Old Testament is messianic in this passage. Number two, the error that this refutes is that only some parts of the Bible are inspired. You know what? That's what the Sadducees believed. And by the way, that's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, right? But think about today. You have Tony Campolo and the Red Letter Christians. They don't think all of the Bible is inspired and from God. So this will refute that. Number three, a very important correction In this text, you'll see that it's not the reader who's inspired by God, us, but rather the biblical authors who are inspired. Therefore, we ought to know what the biblical author has said. And the fourth thing that this corrects is that somehow we need, as Christians, something more than the Scriptures to be sanctified, to be transformed, that the Scriptures aren't sufficient, that we need a neograms, we need Lectio Divina, we need meditation, we need something else. This passage refutes that. So let's look at it. And wow, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's start in 2 Timothy 3.15. Notice Paul says in that from childhood, he's speaking to Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Stop there in verse 15. What sacred writings was Paul referring to? He was referring to the Old Testament, wasn't he? 
And the contention that Paul is making is that these Old Testament writings were able to give Timothy wisdom that led to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, the Old Testament really is messianic. We're not just blowing bubbles when we say that if you read the Old Testament, it can bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. It's true. Now, let's go to verse 16 through 17. He says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. How about those who say, well, I only believe in the words of Jesus. I'm a red-letter Christian. Or the Sadducees who said, I only believe in the first five books. What do we say? No, all Scripture is inspired by God, literally God-breathed, from Genesis to Revelation. Now, notice it says all Scripture. Who are the writers of Scripture? Men. But the ultimate author is God. So just as Christ is truly man, truly God, the Scriptures are truly of man, but they're truly of God. And so it behooves us then to know what the biblical author has said. Why? Because they were the ones who were inspired. Notice it does not say that the reader of Scripture is inspired. So if you're at a Bible study and you come to three different conclusions in your Bible study, you might all be wrong, right? You could all be wrong and just miss it, but you all can't be right. We know that much because the reader's not inspired. It's the biblical author. Finally, what about those who today say, you know, I don't think the scriptures are sufficient. We need enneagrams. We need to go into these other forms of mysticism in order to have true transformation and sanctification. Well, verse 17, Paul would disagree because he says, the man of God may be adequate equipped for how many good works? Every good work. What will you be lacking if all you had were the scriptures for sanctification and your transformation in this life? You'll be lacking nothing. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are sufficient for what the people of God need. And it's because of that that I think the final bookmark here is the coup de grace. Because this is what Paul wanted Timothy to remember. And I think it's something that all of evangelicalism should remember. We are to be those who preach the word always. Why? How many in here have ever heard the saying, preach the gospel always, and if you have to, use words? And I used to think, wow, that's so neat. I'm going to live in such a great way. People are going to see me and they're going to repent and just come to faith. Er, That's not good. It's not good theology. Because the scriptures say faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Now, don't make a mistake and think that works aren't important. Jesus, as we're going to learn in Matthew, says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father in heaven. But the world is not going to come to faith in Jesus Christ because they see you help an old lady across the street. God has promised that he will use the power of the preached word and the scriptures to convert the lost. That's what he promised, and that's why the scriptures are sufficient, not just for the sanctification of God's people once you're saved, but for the justification of the lost. And that's why Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience 
and instruction. If you're ones notice here, Paul is commanding Timothy to preach the word. And remember, he said, in season and out of season. Do you remember I pointed out what that phrase meant originally? Was you had philosophers in Paul's day who would try to determine the appropriate time to speak in a debate versus the inappropriate time to speak in a debate. And what Paul's point is, is that we don't have to worry about that. Timothy, who functioned as a pastor, didn't have to worry about finding the appropriate time to speak and the inappropriate time to speak. He was to continuously preach the word, even when people didn't want to hear it. Why? Two reasons. Number one, because the word of God is powerful to save. The word of God's power to save and to convert and to sanctify is not reliant upon the cleverness of human speech. Paul could tell Timothy, let it rip. Just keep preaching. The second reason why we are to preach at all times is because the second coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, is an imminent proposition. It is an imminent threat to those who are unregenerate, but it is an imminent promise to those who believe. And because this imminent threat is really present, it is important that you and I as Christians realize that it is too late to be engaged in any form of fluff, any form of trickery, in a, some sort of grand-scale sleight of hand. You and I have to be forthright and preach the word at all times, and God has promised that he will use that for the conversion of the lost. Brothers and sisters, I pray that in the weeks and the months to come, and the years to come by God's grace, and if he tarries, that you and I will have the gospel and the word of God upon our lips so that, yes, we'll live godly lives and we'll adorn the gospel through our godly living, but that the gospel would be upon our lips because by faith comes, or through hearing the word of God and the word of Christ comes faith and justification for the lost. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who never forget the word of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've taught us thus far in First and Second Timothy, and we thank you for these great verses that help clarify what you've commanded and what you require of your people. We do pray that in the years to come, we'd be a people that have the gospel upon our lips, that we would have courage and boldness to proclaim your greatness to a dying and decaying generation. I do pray for Ed's family, Lord, uh, as Ed passed into glory with you. We do pray for them. We pray for salvation for any that don't know you. We pray that you would regenerate their hearts, that you would put people in their path, that they would hear the gospel. We also pray for our coworkers, our friends, our family members that don't know you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us ample opportunity to give them your word so that they may be saved. They may have forgiveness of sins in the hope of everlasting life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.